um, just kind of reminds us of how complex these string systems are. And even as professionals who study this stuff, it's so easy to oversimplify and apply general theories to the different places, the different situations and conditions. Welcome to episode three of the Kansas Forest Service podcast. I'm your host, Cassie Wondersee, and today I've got Jaron Tyndall and Andy Klein on the podcast with me. So guys, can you go ahead and introduce yourselves and tell me a little bit about what you do for the Kansas Forest Service? Sounds good. Thanks, Cassie. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so my job with Kansas Forest Service as a riparian forester or water quality forester is really, I just kind of specialize in reestablishing and managing forests along streams and wetlands in Kansas. Um, a lot of my work is brand new establishment related to related to the state's big stream bank stabilization or stream bank protection program. Yeah, and um, this is Jaron. I've I've got a separate job in some ways, uh, but I, my work is is not associated with any state program like Andy, but it's more tied in with uh, federal programs from the Natural Resource Con- Conservation Service and um, really is about planting buffers next to streams and um, stabilizing stream banks on a smaller scale than, than what Andy works with. So he's doing a lot with rivers. Most of my work is really just on creeks where landowner buy-in is a pretty big part of it as opposed to completely um, state-funded, state-sponsored projects, which is, makes a, a bit of a different dynamic, um, but a lot of similarities between what Andy and I do. Jaron, what is it like to work with those landowners um, on, you know, protecting and stabilizing their string banks? It's satisfying when I can help people. A lot of times the help just amounts to education and advice because these string bank projects are really expensive. A lot of them are limited on how much they can invest in, in fixing their string banks. And the dirt work and the rock work for reshaping and um, for armoring those banks, it's really uh, cost prohibitive. And working on smaller streams because that means the projects are smaller and therefore a bit cheaper. The plantings, um, those are usually not restricted in that same way. They're, they're not cheap, but uh, if you're not doing the dirt work, then, then the projects are typically affordable. Um, and the cost share provided by a number of agencies is usually pretty good. So um, it's, they're nice to work with. Andy, what drew you to riparian forestry and in Kansas, especially, you know, we're not really known for forestry in the Great Plains states. So. Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of a little bit of an irony almost. However, when you sit down and think about it, like the root of it all is really what drew me in. Um, I grew up on a small farm in central Minnesota and um, then like a lot of rural folks I grew up hunting and fishing and just enjoying nature and outdoors in general and um, uh, through um, meeting my wife and various uh, different natural resources jobs uh, ended up in Kansas um, which yeah typically is thought of as not a very forested state but when you when you sit back and look about look at 
how um, just all of our ecosystems in Kansas work together where our uh, tall grass prairie here in the east kind of meets the bottomlands and the creeks. Um, and, and then it, out west, you know, the short grass prairie where it, uh, you know, meets the small, smaller streams out there. Even out there, there's, there's a bit of a, a timber or tree resource. And when you sit back and think about like how all these systems kind of work together um, and have really made Kansas this incredibly natural resources rich state and such a productive state for, for food production for all of us, how all those systems work together to have made Kansas what it is and, and what it is uh, now and how it is so productive for us with its natural resources. That's kind of the exciting thing to me. So working to help landowners um, manage those natural resources and, and keep Kansas this incredibly rich state in terms of its natural resources is really what drives me. So it, it's a lot of fun just to, to be out there on the land and, and help landowners and, and them help in the land. Yeah, very cool. So Jaren, what, what drew you to riparian forestry? Uh, well, just kind of a vague ambition to do something to help um, secure water resources for people. I didn't really know what that meant. And sometimes I still wonder, but um, I like being outside. I like working with trees. I like working in streams and measuring them and thinking about them and watching them change. And it's kind of a fun playground of a job in, in a lot of ways. That that's what keeps it engaging. The, the work of it's satisfying um, when we can accomplish you know, projects that are meaningful to the landowner and provide a public benefit. But it's really, there's a lot of opportunities just to enjoy, enjoy a nice day, um, walking a creek or looking at the field edge, talking to the landowner about what they see, what their concerns are, um, talk to them about how management could change to maybe get some more of their goals accomplished and finding the compromises between their need to have a productive field to pay for itself, pay the taxes or pay it off or whatever the case is and having their conservation values realized too, which is there's always a conflict, you know, between that financial need and the uh, conservation ethic that a lot of progress has been made, tremendous progress really um, in the past many decades on that. And um, most farms are really quite healthy in the way that they, they, they fit in production with conservation uh, in intricate and often expensive ways where they're sacrificing profit for the sake of, of prolonging the productivity of their soil. So um, moving beyond terraces and waterways and tile and irrigation, um, a lot of these guys are kind of starting to think about their streams kind of got to adjust their minds to that whole thing again that um, conservation often takes an investment. So that's, that's really the intricate part of the job for us is making uh, this natural resource conservation fit a productive farm basically, not just expect it to be a nature preserve or um, 
some kind of a donation to the public good. What are some of the conservation goals that you see with landowners? What are they concerned about when it comes to their stream banks? Well, they don't like erosion. That's, that's a real simple one. Um, and when they see things change, uh, for instance, a, a bend in a creek moves a little bit further every year, and in some bad flood years, they see that it takes out several rows of their crop. Um, that really concerns them. And they have an idea of just wanting to make their land better. And, and that's usually kind of an unformulated um, ideal for them. So whenever I show up, I, I find myself kind of fleshing those concerns out a bit and um, kind of balancing how much they dislike the idea of erosion with some information on how streams work and that in most of Kansas where we have these streams that are in a pretty degraded state, they've cut down much deeper than they would have been pre-settlement. They contain a lot more flood water within their banks, which means there's a lot more energy um, to do erosion. And part of their process of healing is to widen themselves and create a new floodplain at a lower elevation. Uh, whereas the old floodplain used to be what's currently a farm field, um, they need to make one at a, a, a much lower level that would be contained within the tall banks that we see now, um, but functioning for itself as a stream ought to. It just takes space, and the streams will do that eventually, um, trying to decide where it makes sense to protect a stream bank and prevent that process from happening. That's, that's a tough one um, because it's a natural process. The streams are... are bound to go through and um, figuring out when that's okay and when it's not, it's pretty tough, especially when most of our work is above federal reservoirs that are having sedimentation issues and there's a, a public uh, concern with losing state-owned storage in those reservoirs. So it's worth Kansan's investment to keep those reservoirs functional which again makes stream bank erosion a bad thing, even though it's a natural thing. So it's a bit complex once you get into it. So Andy, I know you've been working a lot on those larger rivers and could you maybe just talk to us a little bit about what that sedimentation looks like on those, those large reservoirs? Yeah, this past year has been super interesting. Um, unfortunately, in, in uh, some cases, in a lot of cases, devastating. Um, but really interesting to watch how Jaron was kind of describing those natural processes, the rivers, how it's natural for them to move a little bit. And that's why we have oxbow lakes and, you know, these, these old bends and wetlands and stuff and, and big river bottoms and seeing the impacts of flooding this past year, there was kind of two types of flooding that happened. There was the typical flooding we kind of think of where, you know, it's this kind of wall of water rushing through, scouring things out, tearing trees and buildings and fences and road culverts and everything up. Um, so there was some of that. And then there was also um, what I describe as backwater flooding, where uh, once, you know, flood water started filling in um, and the reservoirs started filling in, you know, 
then all that water just started rising up and up and up slowly. Um, so down along the Cottonwood and Neosho rivers in primarily Lyon County, there was kind of more of the scouring. And to see that impact, to see how much um, topsoil was lost in crop fields in spots is just mind boggling. Basically in, in some spots where uh, all the topsoil got stripped off the field or, or a portion of the field. And uh, then you're down to some kind of poor subsoil there. Um, meanwhile, then that topsoil is, is deposited as sediment somewhere else where it's this big mucky mess in, uh, in the field and takes a long time to dry out. So that was interesting to see all that scouring uh, down there along the Cottonwood River. And then, um, and that was kind of the same case along the Delaware River and its tributaries. Um, and uh, then the Big Blue and Little Blue River, the other big river system I work on, that was a little bit of scouring up on the, in the north ends of Marshall and Washington counties. But um, the bigger impacts I saw in those rivers was with uh, backwater from Tuttle Reservoir filling up to you know historic high levels and so all that water you know as it fills in and fills up it spreads out and that water is actually pretty slow so it wasn't destructive in the same way that that scouring flood water was but that's where some of that sediment settled out and um, in in some cases I saw about two feet of sediment that was deposited on a field and unfortunately, that covered up our brand new tree planting, just completely buried the seedlings there that were pretty well established and uh, doing well, but they were just completely covered up by, by that sediment. And, um, and then also other existing trees that were well established there, like nice big mature cottonwoods or a patch of mulberries, um, that they were under flood water for so long that they really took a hit like they've either died or they've become really really stressed and uh, so um you know impacts to cropland where where farmers had to think about how are how does this impact their their cropping system um i know a, a lot of farmers were just kind of wringing their hands trying to figure out well how do we handle this what are we going to do with this sediment this year and uh I think uh, I think folks are getting it figured out, um, but that timber loss um, is is going to take a while to get that figured out. The unfortunate impacts there long term is that all those big mature trees that have weakened root systems um, and just just not doing very well now, they're going to start tipping over and become a problem in crop fields and potentially you know could be a problem in the river. So yeah, lots of different types of impacts and um, some of them are yet to be seen. But one last thought to wrap this up, um, the, the sediment being deposited, the interesting thing is we got uh, a cereal rye cover crop established on a couple tree planting sites. Um, and that one where there was two feet of sediment deposited in and that cereal rye did fantastic. It just grew so well just a, a wonderful thick lush stand of cereal rye and uh so that's you know some first hand 
demonstration of what has made Kansas river bottom and creek bottom land so rich and productive is that flooding and sediment deposition has happened naturally for years and years and years and years and years and um you know has has helped create good healthy productive topsoil for us so in a way you know it's it's really bittersweet to see um some of those impacts because they're destructive in the short term but hopefully there's a little bit of a silver lining that maybe in the long term they'll they'll help um you know just kind of keep that natural process of soil creation and, and good healthy topsoil going you were talking about the backwater area and just to maybe clarify for people that haven't really heard of that area before that that's an area that's intended to flood that's part of the storage system of these large reservoirs exactly yep yep every reservoir even the small little pasture stock water ponds um they're all designed to kind of have their permanent pool of water you hear that on the federal reservoirs i think they sometimes call it like the multi-purpose pool um because you know used for water uh, drinking water or other industrial uses of water irrigation or whatever um and recreation of course and wildlife and uh then you've got another zone above that um where uh it's the flood control zone so yeah those those reservoirs then fill up in that flood control zone and um once they exceed that flood control zone then they start uh, those reservoirs start releasing out of the auxiliary spillway or emergency spillway and and again even small farm ponds have them um and uh in the case of tuttle reservoir this past year we saw it get within centimeters of of releasing over the auxiliary spillway or through the auxiliary spillway i should probably say in that case um but yeah that's designed and that's intentional that's why the u.s army corps of engineers maintains that easement on uh at that flood control elevation all the way around the reservoirs thanks andy uh yeah that was a pretty nerve-wracking time during that flooding period last year in Manhattan. And it really makes me think about what people that live in cities and these communities can do to help mitigate that risk of flooding or reduce sedimentation in reservoirs. Yeah, well, I guess what that makes me think of are some investments that municipal governments are making in the management of the upper watersheds. Um, for instance, Wichita sends money into the Cheney Reservoir watershed and um, invests in water quality improvements. Their issue isn't so much tied to flooding, I think. Um, it's more about nutrient issues. So when a city has a vested interest in the, the quality of the water, they can put some of their money towards conservation in the form of cost share to farmers to do conservation practices. And um, I expect that that can be cheaper than building new and better water treatment plants. And in the case of flooding um, in these other watersheds, it could be that um, similar investments for the sake of um, flood mitigation can be made. And what might be useful is to plant wider uh, riparian corridors so that's trees shrubs native vegetation next to all the streams above 
well, above them, wherever that is, whether it's above a reservoir or just above a town. Um, and the rougher you make that floodplain, the slower the water gets here wherever you're living. So um, the fields would be flooded for a longer period of time because the water wouldn't be moving so fast because it was slowed down by tree stems and shrubs and soaking into the ground a bit more, but mostly just slowed down on its way down the valley. Um, so that's, that's probably the simplest. Um, it also takes a lot of space. So it's going to be challenged, which is kind of ties back into the whole concept of government involvement with conservation is that we provide cost share, we provide technical advice to make those challenges less significant for the landowners. Um, and our motivation is a, a broader public uh, benefit. It's, it is about that land and the landowner, but we're investing because it's also about us. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add to that that yeah, like Jaron's saying, like those long-term investments are not cheap and um, they either need to be supported by uh, the government and taxpayers, uh, supported by taxpayers through the government or supported uh, kind of directly um, through the market, directly by the taxpayers in, instead through the market. Um, and I don't know of any opportunities to kind of support through the market, um, but there are some organizations that do that kind of work and um, mitigation banks, um, for example, an organization that might create a wetland to help with water quality or something in a, near an urban area. So I think uh, it's kind of bad advice, but um, like just a Google search for how to support conservation work through the market like that um and then of course the other thing is uh uh get involved with local and county and state and federal policy you know let your policymakers, your elected officials know how you feel about uh water quality and water quantity and natural resources management in general um and uh you know let let them know your opinions on it so they can um help craft and and uh enact policy that's going to be favorable towards water quality kind of stuff um so yeah get in in contact with your local legislators and uh and and seek out and find how you can kind of support conservation in general that's great advice andy so where can people go for help right now? If they want to get a project on the ground, if they're concerned about conservation on their property, or they just want to learn a little bit more, where can they go? Oh, well, look us up. Um, Cassie, I'm sure you kind of share all our contact information, our website and social media and all that. And you can find our phone numbers there, so don't hesitate to give us a call. Um, and then outside of that, your local county conservation district or your local Kansas State University Research and Extension agent. Um, we all work together. We all work real close, hand in hand. Um, Kansas Park and Wildlife Parks Tourism, your local biologist also. But uh, yeah, just look us up there and or, or through one of our kind of partner agencies. And just maybe kind of in wrapping up, I know we shared a picture, was it last week on our Facebook page? about a very interesting object that you found, Andy, out in that 
backwater area of Tuttle Creek Reservoir. So Andy, do you want to talk a little bit about that? And then Jaron, that'll give you time to think about what's some of the most, what's the most interesting thing that you found along a, a creek or a stream bank, whether it was deposited from floodwater or um, old school erosion control. So Andy, I'll let you talk. And then Jaron, I can see the wheels turning already on, on your most interesting find. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it's always fun getting out on a site after a flood, um, getting out along the river or stream after a flood, just to see how things have changed and, uh, what's new and, uh, what's new is oftentimes really old, just really old junk and trash and garbage. And, uh, uh, recently I was out looking at an existing, um, stand of trees next to the big blue river, right below the big blue and little blue confluence and where Tuttle Reservoir backwater had been standing quite deep, about 20 feet deep for a good chunk of the year last year. And uh, there up in the trees, about 20 feet up there, was this old chest freezer that had floated in on that flood water or backwater. And uh, then when the water level went down, that freezer got hung up up there and is still up in that tree 20 feet up. So. Yeah, kind of funny. You never know what you're going to find out there. And um, that was kind of a new one for me. Yeah, yeah. You don't expect to think like walking through the woods to have to look for that overhead danger of, you know, a chest freezer maybe dropping on your head. It's a very wily coyote, coyote moment, you know, of yeah. falling from the sky and landing on you. Yeah, I think what was new is uh, in Kansas, typically we. We, that might not be a totally uncommon site, but it's uh, it's probably because of tornado and not because of flood water. <laughs> All right, Jaron, you've had lots of time to think. Yeah, I've, I've um, been running through my files of things I found and which ones are um, interesting to others and which ones are um, okay to talk about for some privacy issues. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> The one I've selected is actually something Andy found. We were walking a creek down in Morris County once um, that was 14 feet deep uh, with the tall bank hiked up to the field level and vertical sides to this creek bank. And halfway up, so maybe seven feet up and seven feet down, was the hook end of a single tree. So the the pole part on an old wagon or plow or some kind of horse or oxen drawn implement, the, the metal hook that the chains to um, the animal would, would attach to. It was embedded in the gravel in the side of that creek right there at that elevation and, and embedded, not just stuck there like you couldn't guess any way that it would have been put there during the recent flood, jammed in or anything, but it was integrated in it. And it was um, it was fun to find, um, but also just really educational uh, that, you know, that was put there anywhere from, who knows, we'll say 75 to 150 years ago. Um, maybe the single tree broke when they were crossing the creek or it got thrown into a gully and the gully sediments washed in there and got deposited. So we'll think seven feet of deposition above that in a hundred years. 
um, just kind of reminds us of how complex these stream systems are. And even as professionals who study this stuff, it's so easy to oversimplify and apply general theories to the different places, the different situations and conditions, the land. Where we're finding that would have said, well, in 100 years, this thing is cut down 10 feet. I think maybe it was four feet deep pre-settlement. Now it's 14. So it's cut down that far. And think of what change that is. When now I'd say, well, this thing has seven feet of sediment deposited. The floodplain is seven feet taller than it was 100 years ago. So maybe the creek's only cut down three and it got deposited, filled up seven feet. It's just an incredibly complex system. And it's important to keep that stuff in mind because we are continually suggesting solutions um, for these land management issues that we try to base on natural processes or more likely what the earth will maintain by itself. If we mimic a natural system, hopefully nature takes over and keeps it in place as we built it. Um, so the compromise between what we want and what the land's going to do, um, oftentimes there's a losing battle to just not consult with the natural way things work. So just insight like that, that we, we have to be cognizant of floodplain deposition as much as we do stream incision uh, whenever we think about redesigning streams or managing them. So a bit humbling, a bit fun, um, very, a very concrete lesson, uh, which is so valuable compared to conversations and meetings and books and presentations that have to generalize because um, they need to find a broad audience. But becoming intimately familiar with these watersheds has, has been a pretty fun learning experience. All right. Well, you guys have managed yet again to give me even more to think about with riparian forestry here in Kansas. And I know you've done the same for our listeners. So sorry for all the phone calls you guys are going to be getting over the next few days or weeks. Uh, but thanks again so much for being part of the podcast. Um, it was great to have you guys on today. You're yeah, welcome. you're welcome. It's been fun. Well, that's a wrap on episode three of the Kansas Forest Service podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again this month, and we look forward to you guys coming back next month to hear from Tim McDonald, our community forestry coordinator, about how community forests and trees are about so much more than just beautification of our Kansas towns and cities. Until then, make sure you're keeping up with all of the things we're doing at the Forest Service on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast at. Thanks, guys.